Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Professor Sunette Eberge from the School of Computing in the College of Science, Engineering and Computing at the University of South Africa, UNISA, who lectures on human-computer interaction as well as principal concepts of IT service management. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Prof. Eberge, computing is an essential part of modern living in urban as well as rural societies, communication, transport, medicine, home appliances, industry processes, banking. It touches absolutely every industry. Can you please share with us some of the research projects that you've worked on or supervised that you feel have have really had an important contribution to the field? Sure, that's a very interesting question, and it's indeed the case. Um, I was an industry practitioner myself for very long after joining academia about almost eight years ago to now live my passion for teaching and research. Um, so I've been involved in industry in a lot of areas, but the, the latest trend now is um, artificial intelligence adoption. So everybody is looking at artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and how they can utilize it in their environments, as you said, in the various industries. But people tend to forget the human aspects um, involved in artificial intelligence. Things like are maybe scared to adopt the technology, for example. So one of the latest research areas and also one of the focus areas of one of my PhD students was how do I actually adopt AI? Um, And in one particular study um, that we did in a big manufacturing environment, we or the, the student under my supervision came up with a framework for adopting AI, which I see will be very valuable, um, not just for in you know manufacturing environments where the study was conducted, but also in society. Then on that topic is uh, the softer issues, the human aspects such as ethics. You know, what is our ethical role to actually engage with AI? Because everybody is seeing AI is going to take over the world. It's going to take over my job, you know, and it might not be the case. We need to do a mind shift and we have a responsibility to engage with these technologies in an ethical way and educate our society, you know, that AI can actually be an aid to assist us in our in our jobs. You know, so I've now said a lot, um, and I think the golden fret here or the main thing that we should take home is there's a human aspect um, of what we do in um, IT, and we should focus on humans as well. So it's not just about IT and um, computer algorithms and computers, but the human is central to these type of technologies. You're right. It is absolutely the, the hot topic of the day in every field. As I've read more about it, one of the things that strikes me is the opportunity to be almost more human because, in a way, some of the technical aspects can be outsourced 
to AI. And the differentiator is, is who we are, what, what our values are, how we create, how we contribute. So that was one of the things that struck me. But ethics is, is such an important aspect of this and weighing up that dynamic of does everything have to be done by a human or can it be incorporated? And we kind of have this integration between AI and human to do the work. Yes, that is, that's correct. And um, I was at a conference recently for the South African Institute of Computer Technolo uh, Technologists. And um, I actually asked the audience, but who's using chat GPT, for example, because that's the buzzword at the moment. Not all of the people in the room use ChatGPT, but if you ask people, are you using Grammarly? Are you using a spell checker? I don't know if you've seen this new um, slide environment that proposes a slide layout for you when you do a PowerPoint presentation, for example, or any other tool. You know, is it that also a form of AI? So I think we've reached the stage already in society where we can't separate AI from what we are doing. And it's so intertwined that you think you're not using AI, but actually you are to, to a certain extent. You know, so already that boundaries has now shifted. And in a couple of years from now, it's going to be our life. You know, if we like it or not, AI will be part of it. And I just want to touch on the topic of the value system and um, that you mentioned we now in a society where values are becoming an issue. You know, we as female academic researchers need to be professional career women. We need to look after our children. We need to assist them with schoolworks. And in some instances, there's no father role available to our children, you know, so we need to fulfill all the roles and we need to ask ourselves, but that, what value system are we instilling in our children at the end of the day? Because that value system is important going forward as it now will touch society and how we engage with technology. So we can't really do our research in isolation. We need to start from the bottom we need to make sure we also attend to our children you know because they are our generation and if we don't do that properly you know where is the values in our society going and then ultimately how we engage with technology because we won't have a value system or proper value system you know to engage with the technology so it's only a holistic view that we need to take um, when we look at technologies. It's not just our work, but it's also our personal lives that it's touching and our families. You've raised such an important point. A few years ago, or more than a few years ago, when it was sort of this perspective of digital natives versus digital immigrants with older generations coming into adapting and using technology, whereas younger generations are, are born into it. In our conversation, we have, have got to this point where new generations are not going to know another world that is not aided or integrated with AI. But from a, a woman's point of view, you've mentioned the, the multidimensional roles that women have to uh, contend with in their work environment, in their home environment, 
and keeping the cycle of, of life moving ahead. You've collaborated with various institutions and universities. How do you feel that these types of collaborations and partnerships contribute to the empowerment of women in the field of technology as well as academia? Oh, international collaboration is so important. It's not an easy task because you need to identify your collaborate partners, you know, find them, setting up your networks and then keep that alive. So I have collaborated with some of my um, Norway colleagues also on the topic of um, AI adoption. And one tend to think um, in South Africa, when we do research, we are very isolated. And because we are a developing country, we think that we are always a bit behind, you know, from the big international counterparts. But when I started my collaboration with them, I realized that it's actually not the case. We are not behind in how we think about technology. We can contribute, you know, to this bigger international understanding of the concept. So we don't have to take a step back and think that we are not good enough on an international level. Um, so that was one of the key points for me. And, and also from uh, a female perspective, you know, I think the, the traditional roles in Africa for a woman is much more stricter um, than on an international level. I think on an international level, they have realized that females also have a role to play in a professional environment. While in the traditional African type of environment, there is a lot of stereotyping going on um, and we need to work on our stereotyping, you know, going forward. But in terms of the knowledge contribution we can make as females on an international level, it's actually sometimes underestimated. So we shouldn't, you know, uh, take a step back. We should go for international partnerships and um we also have this challenge of applying for international grants. And there is now so many opportunities for females to get international grants. And my message is actually go for these grants. Don't think that you're not good enough. You know, apply for that grant because it opens up a whole new world and a whole new way of thinking. That's a great piece of advice. I was reflecting for a moment when you were talking about this idea, this perception that we have of not being good enough on an international level. And one of the things that struck me with Eunice's current motto is reclaiming Africa's intellectual futures. As an institution, it celebrates its 150th anniversary in 2023. It's got a massive student population in excess of 370,000 students across the African continent, as well as other countries in the world. How do you interpret this motto of reclaiming Africa's intellectual futures and apply it to your area of work? That's a very interesting question because 
Back in the days, I, I'm an old um, UNISA alumni. I did my first degree. I always say the first degree is the special one because I think that's the one that you work the hardest for. Um, so I was also a UNISA student. Um, and back in the days when we had to write our assignments and then rush to Pretoria, drive there, put your little assignment in the box, you know. And coming from that perspective, what I can remember from those days is the study material was internationally based. You know, the examples were from a Western perspective and we sometimes battle to understand that. So what we've done, and especially in one of my um, modules, we are trying to Africanize our examples. So in other words, not disregarding the Western input, but also take the examples and try to relate it to our African type of identity. There's a lot of um, debate around Africanizing some of the curriculum concepts because people feel that we are offering international level degrees. You know, you shouldn't take away that Western perspective. But my take on it always is have the Western input, but also substantiate the examples, for example, in a textbook to an African context so that our local scholars or students rather can understand and relate to it. I always um, tell my students that it's almost like a mother tongue language education. You know, you understand something if it's spoken in your language. Now, those examples, if we use local examples, it's like using a mother tongue language to communicate a particular concept to the students. We have done some research on the effectiveness of the Africanization of these um, examples, and we're busy writing it up. Um, and we got mixed results, although the majority were positive. There were other things that came out from the research things like unfortunately we did this study during the pandemic you know so all those external factors influence the hardships of them understanding theoretical concepts um, but overall it seems positive um, it seems that this is probably the way to go you know and that is what is making us different from other universities you know trying to keep our legacy and back to our roots and as i said to use examples in a way that our students can understand it in this framework of utilizing local or continental examples that in a way that if Western examples are used, it kind of continues to persist the view that we may be a little inferior. But if we're utilizing our own examples, we're embracing these uh, uh, theories within our local context and elevating those views um, so that we can really be proud of, of the work that we put out. I wanted to stay with the theme of education for a moment. If you could please share some of your views around education as an equalizer and enabler for women, whether they stay in the academic space or move into the, the world of work and industry. That is the start um, of educating our youth to be able to live up to the expectation of fulfilling leadership roles in our country. Now, having said that, 
there are many challenges that our young girls in particular face. Not just are they challenged with basic things, basic needs like sanitary products. You know, they are too ashamed to come to school, you know, because they simply can't afford the basics. And then also on top of that, you have a scenario where the mom or the dad is absent and the the girl would have to look after siblings, you know. So from a very young age, they need to fulfill multiple roles. Um, So education is really the start to everything. And it opens up this door because if we can educate our young girls, they can educate their younger siblings they look after, you know, so it can almost have a domino effect into their younger siblings. Um, Having said that, the other challenges that, that we often come across is the basic needs, you know, of food in shelter. And then we're not even touching on things like connectivity to be able to, if you can't then get to a school, at least um, attend a school online. You know, so there are many, many challenges that we can address um, in this country, but we need to. And I think if we focus on the girls, um, we can have a profound impact on them and on their lives and show to them that there is opportunity for them to grow as well. So I think that should be one of our core focus in our education system. You know, not disregarding the boys, you know, um, but I think we can have a bigger impact on these females um, in terms of our country and in terms of our leadership. Leadership is, is critical. Often when I think about universities as these hubs, these networks where students come into these environments, whether it's physical, whether it's virtual, studying a variety of different topics, but the reality is that they are going to become the next leaders of the country. They will be the next lawyers. They will be the next CEOs, the next set of doctors. What role do you think universities play in in shaping the thinking of students to prepare them for the world of work? think it's a pivotal role. Um, We try on, especially on first year level, we focus on theoretical constructs. But as you go through your curriculum and your degree and you progress, we um, target our assessments on a higher level of conceptual thinking. So it's not just the recall type of statements, but the practical application thereof. And when you get to a postgraduate type of degree in our environment, you're now doing research and you create your own knowledge. So if you look at that curriculum and the way we approach it, we really um, try to educate them how to think. Yes, we do expose them to theoretical constructs, but it's that higher order uh, or level thinking. Uh, We refer to it as the Bloom's taxonomy. You know, how do you actually take what you've learned, applied it in an environment, and now in that environment, take that and use it to make a decision? Because a leader should ultimately be able to make good decisions. So that's why we try to teach them, you know, and not uh, trying to go back to the concept of Africanization and put all the scenarios in their environment. But if they understand the environment and the examples we give them when explaining theoretical constructs, they can make a better decision because they understand the underlying theoretical constructs 
make a better decision and then ultimately be a better leader because they can base their leadership then on uh, better informed decisions. Do you think that there is enough collaboration between industry and academia? Absolutely not, in my opinion. Um, I think it's an area that that's lacking at the moment. I think um, traditionally society sees academic institutions on the one side and industry on the other side in silos. I think it's time that we should really take hands and make sure that what we teach in our academic institutions actually align with what industry wants. And we can only do that if we communicate properly. Yes, we do have advisory panels, for example, where industry will sit in on our meetings. We will schedule meetings and they will have an opportunity then to give their input in terms of the curriculum and what we teach. But, you know, that is once a year. But what about if we can create scholarships where institutions can actually dictate exactly what type of skills they want um, and then, you know, we educate um, the scholars accordingly so that when these students leave, you know, they have jobs already. So I think there should definitely be a closer network that we need to build between these two areas. I think it's too siloed. I think it's too focused on our particular needs and we should really open up, you know, um, our boundaries and make it a better environment and a more flexible environment for our uh, students then to be employed um, by industry. So no, definitely not enough has been done. We need to collaborate more. How do you think we can realistically overcome those barriers besides, for instance, offering scholarships that really speak to a particular industry or speak to a particular company's needs? Because this divide continues to grow, especially when reviews only happen on an annual basis. I mean, you've got a, a curriculum that you set. Students go into this trajectory, they start their, their studies and, and they continue. You can't chop and change mid-year. Um, so how do you think we can really overcome these barriers? Because this is an issue across different industry sectors, not uh, limited to the IT environment. That is a very difficult question to answer because I don't think there is a quick fix. Um, but what we try to do, I'm the president of the Association for Information Systems, the Southern African chapter, and we also have a student chapter. Now, the main objective of the society is to promote um, information systems um, in the Southern African region, and we focus on a student chapter. Now, for these students, um, it, it's free. You can join um, this chapter and then we have workshops. And during these workshops, we get industry speakers that will come to join virtually and then educate our um um, our students in terms of the opportunities available to them. And then we also try to have um, short virtual workshops that will focus on a particular skill. Now, yes, our degrees are fixed, but it um, we can always try to um, 
introduce a concept of lifelong learning. You're busy with your degree, but you can always attend a short learning programs um, or short courses. And then we really try to select a topic and we do a virtual workshop with these students just to expose them. And then from there, they can then decide, you know, we have now obtained a certificate for a half-day workshop, uh, but from there, go and explore other short learning programs. Um, UNISA also offers a lot of short learning programs, and I, I think that is the way to go. You know, still have your formal degree. Yes, it's like a big Titanic ship. You can't change that overnight but substantiate that with shorter type of programs. And don't stop, you know, once you've graduated now and you alumni student, continue that journey with various programs and reskill and upskill um, yourself, the, you know, the entire time. Lifelong learning is, is fundamental. If you don't do it, you're just going to get left behind. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Sunette Aberge from the School of Computing in the College of Science, Engineering and Computing at the University of South Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. What advice would you give to people in the computing discipline who are considering a career, whether it is in the academic space or in or in industry. And what I mean by, by this question is almost an opportunity to to sell the to sell the space, to sell the discipline, because it is such an incredibly exciting field. Very interesting question. I ended up um, in this environment by accident. I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So back in the days, I studied a very general degree, which left the door open for many different areas. Um, my advice would be for people in this environment is don't specialize too soon. And, um, you know, you get all these degrees that will specialize, let's say, on counting only um, or medical is not different because you need to specialize otherwise you won't become a good doctor um, but keep the door open for various areas of specialization because the bottom line is when you're young you think you know what you want and um, you have a perception of a particular career that you want to pursue but you might end up in that career and then realize that it's not what you want to do and then you've wasted all your time and your money on obtaining a particular degree. Nice thing about the informatics um, environment in which I work is that you can actually become anything, you know, and, and if you study a, a IT degree, you can become a programmer if you want. You can become um, a human-computer interaction type of designer, you know, if you are Um, You can become the CIO. You can become a chief technology officer. You know, there are so many avenues that you can follow. And my advice would be don't spend specialize too soon do something that's a more that's a bit more generalized and then from there once you have now started working then decide on your field of specialization because that will open up your avenues and you will never ever be out of a job 
because you will have multiple skills that organizations can use. Thanks for sharing the the breadth of opportunities uh, in the computing discipline. I mean, it's it's massive, and it's great that there are very few limitations in the field. One thing that I wanted to touch on in the conversation was you mentioned that you were president of I think it's the of is it Association Systems. Yes, there's Association for Information Systems, AIS, yes. Please, can you tell us about that um, organization and also your role as as president? Um, It's actually an international body that looks after the information systems discipline um, on a global level with the main objective to promote um, IS. Uh, in society. They organized five flagship conferences for academic scholars throughout the year. And that is really the place to be if you want to network. Now, if you want to publish at these conferences, it is quite difficult to get into because the quality is just amazing. So that's the one thing. If you are renowned as a good IS information system scholar, you publish at these conferences, you go there and you network with the best of the best. Each environment or uh, region has a SIP body because you can think on a, on a global level, it is quite big. Um, so our region is called the Southern African region. And we, being part of the global body, we also promote IS in the Southern African region. And we try to create opportunities for our local scholars, local being Southern African, so it is quite big, um, to actually collaborate and share knowledge. So that is the main objective. Also, by being a member of AIS, you get access to a fantastic academic library of all these published papers. Um, And there is also opportunities to um, join uh, international uh, collaboration networks. And there are also a lot of job opportunities that that the global body um, promotes um, and advertise on behalf of academic environments. Um, So it is really a body created to promote IS and to share knowledge. My role um, as a AIS president, um, I just took over the role now. Uh, I'll be president for the next two years. And my main focus is on my passion of um, the student chapter. So we are going to have a whole lot more um, student chapter events throughout the year. This year we have big plans. We are going to do two or three student chapter events and our first event without spilling the beans too much before um, we start advertising, but we are going to focus on cyber awareness that goes with the uh, cyber awareness or security uh, month in October. So we are identifying a lot of themes and we are then going to focus on these different themes throughout the year. Fantastic initiative. And, you know, the more I think about these types of organizations and this aspect of networking, of opportunities to collaborate, of opportunities to access work, opportunities to to knowledge share, that it provides this environment where it can actually accelerate 
and and growing communities that can really help advance people's careers by by staying on the cusp of cutting edge data. Absolutely, and I think these online events are very important because if you also look at the environment at Unisa, I have online classes with my students because I come from a residential university um, and that was the norm and when uh, I recently joined Unisa and I started doing this and everybody was so surprised and my students say, this is so amazing because now for the first time they have a platform that they can engage directly you know, with a So this is really a platform where everybody can get together and share their local knowledge and um, also to share their hardships, you know, and be there for one another. And just to know, you know, I'm not alone in this journey. I'm battling with writing my research proposal, um, but somebody else is battling um, also. So that makes life just a little bit easier to know um, you are not alone in your journey. One of the takeouts of my conversation today is really about the humanness aspect, or let's say the holistic humanness component, thinking about, yes, universities are there for for knowledge gain, Uh, the multidimensionality, particularly of female roles, having to kind of split your life into different segments to make sure that everything is taken care of this idea of of culture, this idea of community. Do you think that that is also something that female professors perhaps bring to the table because of their own inherent experiences? Absolutely. I think we have a level of empathy because we have struggled so much. We know how it feels um, to be uh, expected of to deal with so many things, you know, keeping all the balls in the air. You know, um, some of my colleagues, if I can see they're taking strain, then they will tell us we have this saying that, oh, I've dropped one of my balls today. <laughs> because it's so difficult keeping everything up in the air. And I think just that hardship, make us better lecturers or better academics for that matter because we know how it feels we know if you have missed that deadline we know how it feels and we know why we've missed it so I think we tend to be a bit more lenient and because we understand the context and the environment uh, and the hardships Um, disregarding our male counterparts but I think we have it a bit harder (laughs) to keep all those balls in the air and that that makes us better scholars yeah I've I've got this visual of of balls flying and women juggling and each (laughs) other catching uh, respective balls to to keep them up as we wind down our conversation today a question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success so can you share with us what you feel have been some of the drivers that have benefited you yeah that's a very interesting question um I think what contributed to my success was the fact that I integrated a good work-life balance at the end of the day. Um, 
I married very late in my life because I was a professional athlete or I tried to be a professional athlete, but that installed a level of discipline and motivation in me that I could use um, in my academic environment. Being disciplined, being motivated, set a goal for yourself and work hard to achieve that goal. And know that if I want to go and run a marathon, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm not going to wake up one day and just run that marathon. I need to do my bit every day. And if I do my bit every day, I would reach my goal. So that is actually one of my big mottos in life is don't disregard that work-life balance and make time for yourself. Because although you think I don't have time for myself, the time that you invest in yourself is actually contributing to you being a better scholar or a better academic for that matter, because you will be fresh, you will um, have more energy, um, and you will be happy. Because it's not just about work. Yes, work is important, um, but we need to have that balance. And um, when I go for my runs, that is the time when I conceptualize the next idea to my research papers, because that's me time. Um, and that's the time when there's no interruptions. And if I think I'm going to die now during this long run, I just think of what I'm going to write next. Um and then I'm not so tired anymore and I can't wait to get home because I want to, to go and write that paper. We cannot ignore the physical, the mental, the emotional, the, the kind of the wholeness of, of being. Lastly, as we close out today's conversation, please can you share a few words of inspiration or motivation to girls and women who are listening to us? I would say never give up. Always keep your eye on the ball, the right ball, and never, ever give up. Because if you think of getting up, uh, giving up rather, you are so close towards um, achieving your goal at the end of the day. I read a study the other day that said that 99% of people that give up their, their dream were actually on the verge of obtaining their goal. So don't ever give up. I know it's sometimes hard. Um, rest, uh, but don't quit. Fantastic message. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for the opportunity to be able to share um, my passion for... Um, academics. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Sunette Eberge from the School of Computing in the College of Science, Engineering and Computing at the University of South Africa. 